It's good to see you all, and I'm eager to open up the book of Deuteronomy, mostly because it contains what I like to call the preacher's advantage. Uh, It's a place unfamiliar to most Christians, and so it's home court is is sort of what they call it in in sports. Uh, I love the book of Deuteronomy, and I go into it knowing how good it is. You go into it thinking, sounds boring. And so I I feel like I have an advantage. I get to show you why the book of Deuteronomy is such a joy and a privilege. And we understand that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is useful and and profitable and is treasured by Christians. But there are just some areas in the Bible that aren't as creased in our Bibles as other areas. And Deuteronomy is one of those spots. And... Really, when I put Deuteronomy 4 through 29 or whatever the bulletin says is the sermon text tonight, I was just kidding. I was only scaring you. There's no way we're going to go through all that. So that was just to kind of weed the elect from the non-elect out <laughs> and see who really, who really comes to worship on, on Sunday nights. So what we've done, the, the youth pastors who are teaching through Deuteronomy, what an odd combination, youth pastors and Deuteronomy only at Grace Church, uh, Pastor Jay opened it up for us last week with chapters 1 through 4. His exposition of chapter 4 was very helpful, very clarifying. He introduced the book to us very well. Uh, this, this book, we just kind of chopped it into five pieces according to some of its natural seams. And the seam that I'm in, I think the best way to think about it is this really is just a large section of, of law Uh, The book of Deuteronomy opens chapters 1 through 3, largely with Moses recounting where the people had been. He's reminding them of of their history uh, and their first time trying to enter the land, and then because of a lack of faith, failing to do so. They saw the giants, and they they ran. And so as as he talks them through uh, their history and then shows them uh, their current battle plan in the Transjordanian plains, about to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. Now a new generation, the old generation, died in the wilderness. This new generation entering in, Moses preaches to them. He exposits the law of God, the Ten Commandments and more, everything that God gave his people. And in the section that we're in tonight, Deuteronomy middle of chapter 4 through chapter 29, I found a section that I think is, is most reflective of the whole. So I think we'll have a chance to kind of dip around and look a little bit at this larger section, but I want to I really focus on Deuteronomy chapter 7. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, which I think in many ways is the heart and message of this great book. And really will serve as a counter to any chronological snobbery we have in our New Testament preferences because it is so rich and so good. Let's, let's read the whole chapter, Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Mennonites, and the Holdontites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. 
And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statues and the judgments which I'm commanding you today to do them. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, an increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land, which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness. He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember that the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and wonders, and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little, and you will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will grow them into great confusion until they're destroyed. He'll deliver their kings into your hands so that you will make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you, before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you'll be snared by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it and you shall utterly abhor it. 
for it is something banned. This is the very word of the living God. Deuteronomy 7, really the heart and a microcosm of this whole book, I think can serve as an, uh, a cure for any kind of chronological snobbery that exists among New Covenant believers. Today, the way we think about the Old Testament isn't always appropriate. It's often off balance. That's why this series in the first five books of Moses is so important. It reminds us that the problem of the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews, a threat to return to Judaism, is not a problem we face today. Instead, we have a different problem. We are not tempted to think about the the greatness of Moses or the betterness of the old system or the glories of the temple and the sacrificial system. Uh, We understand the power and efficacy of the death of Christ, but I think this pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that chronological snobbery among Christians causes us to think of the, the Old Testament and the people of Israel as little more than Neanderthals, sort of spiritual weaklings devoid of an understanding of the true grace of God. The Dark Ages is what we think of when we think of the Old Testament, a time when people were stuck under the law. Pastor Jay, last week, began to show you that these Israelites, who we too often scoff at and think of low and less, a people of emancipated spirituality trapped under the law, under the hand of an angry, resolute Old Testament deity, he began to show us that these people were people who understood and enjoyed the grace of God. And though our world and even our worship is radically different in so many ways than the ancient Israelites, and though we live on this side of the the clarity and, and joy of the cross and of the universal message of salvation that we Uh, carry on our lips and around the world. There are so many things that remain the same no matter where you open your Bible. Our world and worship is radically different, but there are things that remain the same. Primarily, God is the same. And we human beings, well, we too are so much the same. And though our world is different than their world technologically and Our worship is different than their worship in many ways. The principles of the book of Deuteronomy confront a snobbery of sorts that we might be prone to have towards the Old Testament. These people were people who understood the grace of God. They were people who understood a good news was being revealed to them. And though we're likely to think of that in the context of God's promise in the garden that that promise that there would be someone that comes to crush the snake's head, that proto-euangelion, that that first preaching of the gospel, I think we forget as we get deep into this section of, of laws, especially in a place like Deuteronomy, that these people understood that their God was a God of grace, that they were grace people. They were blessed and privileged and chosen of God. They were a special people under the unique guidance and care of God. And when God gave them the law, as we like to call it, uh, we think of it only in terms of rules and regulations to follow. But as you study the book of Deuteronomy, what we find is the law is a, a shorthand word for divine revelation. The law is not just law and commands, it's also exhortation, it's praise, it's, it's instruction. 
The law was life-giving to people. And that's why David would pray, oh, how I love thy law. See, God's giving his law was a tremendous grace to them. They were surrounded by nations who didn't know God, who lived according to their own desires, who were pagan and dark and lost. And their experience of the unique guidance and care of God is especially on display in a book like Deuteronomy where you have the covenant people of God about to engage in a holy warfare against a pagan people who had done God's people so much harm in their recent past. But more than anything, we have the revelation of God in the book of Deuteronomy. He shows his people himself. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, we see a, a, a sort of gospel. We see some, some good news. And though it's not the full gospel that we have in the coming and person of Christ incarnate, what we have is the gospel according to Moses. And it was truly good news in a profound sense. And it resonates with our hearts as recipients of the full gospel as seen in Jesus Christ. And so let's, let's call tonight's message the gospel according to Moses in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, those just give you a little, a little bit of shape of, of where that's going before we look at chapter 7 in, in three portions. Uh, Pastor Jay walked us through the first four chapters, and the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons by Moses. If you just want a big picture of Deuteronomy, the, the name Deuteros, Namos, Deuteronomy is uh, broken down Latin, and it means second law, second giving of the law, and it's not a rerun. Instead, it's a preaching through the law for this next generation. The prior generation had received the law at Sinai. Now Moses is exposing it. He's explaining it. He's extolling God, and he's talking about the law and giving them a more detailed look into what God has shown the people about himself. And and so that's what you have in that first section. As you get into this second section, what kicks it off is Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments really are known as the Ten Words. They're, they're representative of the, the whole law of God. They could be, uh, in some ways, an outline for the book of Deuteronomy. Some think there's certain psalms in the Old Testament that seem to be based on the shape and structure and content of the ten words. They were the, the, the way that the law of God was, was taught to children and, and synthesized and remembered. And, and so you can remember the sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. The seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. The second commandment, uh, don't bow down to idols. So all of these are just synopsis. They're, they're summaries of God's requirement and they're repeated in Deuteronomy chapter five. Deuteronomy chapter six is that memorable chapter that contains the Shema, uh, that reminder that there is a parental and generational responsibility to not just teach the children when they come to the temple, but to teach them all the time in the home, to teach them the kind of covenant-keeping God that we have the privilege of serving. And so uh, Moses is the mediator of that law. That's in Deuteronomy 5. The greatest commandment is given in Deuteronomy 6. If you skip past our chapter, Deuteronomy 7, which really works out the details of conquest and worship, that moves to Deuteronomy 8, which teaches them some lessons from the wilderness, uh, learning and recounting those. In Deuteronomy 9 and 10, he recounts the, the incident with the golden calf 
In Deuteronomy 10, it's Moses preaching and exhorting them all the way through chapter 11. Uh, Scholars are divided as to how many sermons this is. Uh, It's not likely that Moses preached the whole book in one sitting. Instead, it was either three or maybe five. Nobody really knows. Uh, Distinct addresses that were, were set out to the people as they were prepared to enter the promised land. And so whether it's the second speech or the third speech, I don't know. But Deuteronomy 12 through 26 would have been the the part of the law that when you hit in your quiet time, you're aware that, that you need extra coffee. This is the stuff about uh, laws pertaining to worship in Deuteronomy 12, uh, laws pertaining to idolatry, Deuteronomy 13, clean and unclean foods in Deuteronomy 14. And, and those of you who, who've read that part wonder, like, what does God have against Red Lobster? The cheesy biscuits are a delight. So, uh, and then you move to the, the laws about tithes and Sabbath and animals and feasts and uh, politics, civil life, and, and the, the value of protecting life in Deuteronomy 19 uh, certainly tells us something important about how God views the sanctity and sacredness of human life, the way we should think about both capital punishment and modern problems like abortion, uh, as you see in Deuteronomy 19 through 21, how how God favors and protects life. Uh, Laws about sexual immorality and marriage and property laws fill Deuteronomy 21 through 25. Uh, Laws about civics and business and commerce. And then uh, laws about worship and first fruits and tithes round out Deuteronomy 26. So maybe I did go through the whole section. But the reason I want you to hear that is I I think Deuteronomy 7 provides a grid through which to view all of that. So rather than getting lost in the details of the particular laws, Moses provides a warning for the people in Deuteronomy 7 about what life under God's law will be like, what life in the promised land will be like, And I think the best way we can describe it is he gives them good news. When he gives them these warnings and promises mingled together, it's the same kind of language that's going to conclude this larger section as he talks about blessings and cursings. And I think Isaiah is doing that section for us in a few weeks. But it's that kind of warning and promise that curses and rewards that Moses begins with. And and what he does is he sets up the gospel according to Moses. And it's profound, and it's redemptive, and it's powerful. And I think as we move through it, you really see that God's concern for his covenant people and the revelation of, of God in his gospel is glorious then and glorious now. So as we approach this holy ground of Deuteronomy 7. I hope we hear the words of Moses accurately and in their context, and we hear the people of Israel's words rightly spoken, because this is a nation who has heard the voice of God from the fire and lived to tell about it. Deuteronomy 5 says those words. These are a privileged people, and in chapter 7, we see the gospel according to Moses, and it plums the theological depths. It's why some have called Deuteronomy the Romans of the Old Testament. 
because these people are seen as a people of extraordinary privilege, having received the revelation of God and salvation from God and a special calling and a set-apartness that has everything to do with who their God is. And so Moses pastors these people. He shepherds these people and tells them good news that's worth sharing. And so Deuteronomy chapter 7, the gospel according to Moses. Let's look at it in three portions. Chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, Moses' gospel, first off, demands God's holiness. It demands God's holiness. And I already read it to you, but that key verse, after reminding them that they are to go in and destroy their seven peoples, seven nations or tribes listed in verse one, I added a few uh, just to see if you were paying attention, but uh, this isn't a complete list, uh, but it's intended to be. In other words, there's other places in the Old Testament where you can find lists of 10 or 11 or 12 peoples that are uh, inhabiting the promised land that will need to be removed by force, by holy warfare. In this summary, Moses describes them as seven peoples. Uh, We can call them all Canaanites if we want uh, but he gives seven because that's a number that really represents. He says that they're, they're greater and stronger than you. And he speaks of the, the necessity of driving them completely out of the land. And as he describes the key verse there in verse six, which is the reason for this kind of violence being commanded by God to his people to this Uh, pagan land that are going to be taken over by the Israelites. Verse 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you. You see, the gospel according to Moses begins with the demanding prerequisite of recognizing the holiness of God. Moses speaks to these people, many of whom who have never tasted bread because there's no ovens in the wilderness. They've been on manna since childhood, manna bread and manna burgers and manna breakfast cereals and manna Pop-Tarts. and it's, Everything's manna, manna, manna. They've never had from, from their entire lives known anything but the special miraculous provision and blessing of God. They didn't have any microwaves in the wilderness. They knew what it was like to be provided for and to be dependent on God. They knew something of God's nature in the wilderness because so many of their brothers and sisters, the, the, the nation, the, the generation that had gone before them had died for their disobedience and God's holiness had been on clear display to them. Even as he provides, they were laid low in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10. I mean, the entire generation was buried over the course of those 40 years of wanderings. And now God wants to reinforce this in Moses' sermon because Moses preaches of the necessity of wiping out seven nations. Ten nations in Genesis, but a way of describing their totality, that they need to be completely destroyed. 
The tribal people who occupied the land, sometimes called Canaanites, a word that means lowlanders, first encountered by the Egyptians in the southwestern part of that country, and that's where they got that name Canaanites from. And they assumed that the whole country was full of these people of Canaan. They were the first people they met. If you came from the north, you would have met the Amorites. That's a word that means uh, westerners or some word like that. The seven are listed here because it's a Hebrew number of totality, showing that all the people of the land, the ones who had cultivated and built and inhabited this land, are to be destroyed in total, a people more numerous and more mighty than the people of Israel. All of these seven nations being representative of the inhabitants of the land, God is going to bring them into the land and God will give them over and they must devote themselves to destruction, the text tells us. Verse two, you shall utterly destroy them. The Hebrew word is harem. This isn't the first time we've encountered it in the book of Deuteronomy. It was in chapter two, and if it sounds odious to you, if it sounds offensive to you, well, I preached a whole sermon on this when I preached through the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 2, and that sermon will be more offensive to you. So let me just summarize. God demands the total destruction of these people, and he tells them he doesn't want them to intermarry with these people. Now, don't confuse this command with some sort of prohibition of interracial marriage done by sloppy theologians in the Civil War. This is not an issue of race. This is an issue of allegiance, an issue of religion. God is prohibiting not interracial relationship. There's tons of examples of that in the Old Testament. Ruth wasn't an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She converted to Yahweh, worshiped God, and God alone became one of the ancestors of the Messiah. We're not talking about interracial marriage here. This is talking about compromising Israel's essential commitment to the holiness of God. He tells them not to intermarry, that they may wipe these people out completely. They must chop down all their idols and burn the carved images with fire. Why are they to do this? Well, the key verse is verse six. It literally has the Hebrew word key in it, which means because, translated in my Bible as the word for, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. It means that because you're a holy people to Yahweh your God, holy to the Lord. Holiness is one of the great themes of this book and of the entire Old Testament. And I'll remind you that holiness for God's people meant that they were to be his exclusive possession. And the gospel, according to Moses, is a gospel of holiness. We think of the word holiness as Christians, and we often think of the progressive nature of our pursuit of sanctification and Christ-likeness. We think of the effort put forth. We think of spiritual disciplines. We think of ourselves when we were first converted to Christ and, and the seemingly small progress that God has made in us. It's often how we think of holiness, but in the book of Deuteronomy, holiness is not focused on the pursuit as it is an actual reality. Anything holy in the Old Testament was something that had been set apart. You look at the book of Leviticus, the instruments of worship, the implements for sacrifice, even the curtains and everything else that was part of temple worship was called holy because it had been devoted or set apart for particular use. Objects in the temple were holy. The offering was to be holy. It was not ordinary. It was special. It was set apart. 
The Sabbath day in Deuteronomy 5 in the Ten Commandments, it was considered a a holy day, a separate day, a different and distinct day. It wasn't the same as Tuesday or Wednesday. It was set apart. It was special. It was different. And it wasn't just stuff in Leviticus that was called holy or days of the week that were holy or festivals, but God's people here are called holy in verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. God's people were called holy. They were to be set apart, exclusive to God and God alone. And that's why they were to be separate from the people in the land that they would possess. And that's why it was imperative that God had blessed these pagan nations and caused them to build these great cities and planted these expansive orchards, not ultimately for their own enjoyment, but ultimately so that someday God would grant to his people to accomplish his purpose in the land that he had devoted to them. You see, these people were not indigenous is our modern word. These people had for centuries been a problem, a thorn in the side of God's people. It was Abraham who had dealt with so many of these peoples as they hounded him throughout his journeys as God established the nation of Israel through the seed of Abraham. But the main focus of understanding why God demanded the people's distinct separation and total possession of this land was that this call to holiness, this reminder that they are holy is a confirmation of their status. He's not simply urging them to be holy. Here he's urging them to be obedient. And he's showing them that they need to recognize who they are, that they are different, that they're set apart, because holiness, though an ambitious, an ambition for us in one sense, before it's an ambition, it has to be a reality. It starts as a fact. And in these verses, holiness is something that God has accomplished. That's why verse 1 says, when the Lord your God brings you into the lands... There's a people stronger than they are. It wasn't something they could have done on their own. God did it. And that's why verse 2 says, when Yahweh your God delivers them before you, you shall defeat them. And their defeat of these seven great nations is going to be accomplished by God's work destroying them. They belong to God in the same way that these instruments of worship in the Old Testament belong to God. Devoted to him in the same way that this land, this promised land, Canaan, that they're about to enter is God's land. They are to be God's people exclusively his. And this necessitates some response, the status of holiness that they're to recognize as they need to, in verse two, utterly destroy, harem, all these people. There was no syncretism in Israel. There was no religious plurality. There was no spirit of tolerance towards other gods and other religions. And this is so alien to our way of thinking in a a Western and pluralistic society. I mean, we're so inundated with the, with the rhetoric of tolerance that no one particular re- religion is right. It's just as long as we're all committed to doing what we think is right and we can progress together as an open-minded society. Well, that kind of thinking is exactly what God was prohibiting his people from having. They were to be exclusive worshipers of Yahweh. They were to have one and only God because he was the only true God. And he warns them of that in verse 2 and tells them they're to utterly destroy these people. And you cannot allegorize the book of Deuteronomy. You can't say it's about conquering big problems in, in life. Ultimately, the book of Deuteronomy is a book of holy warfare. 
It's God moving his people into a land that he promised them and exterminating many other nations in an act of divine justice. And if you have a problem with that, then you have a problem not with the text. You have a problem with God, a sovereign God who is to be feared, who has the right to give life and to take it away, who in his grace, every single person in this room and on this world right now is breathing his air. It's his air, and you're breathing it, and your heart beats, and you live another day or another week or another year or another decade or more because God in his sovereign plan allows you to do so. And when a person finally dies and stands before God, they stand before a God that doesn't answer to them, they answer to him. And God's people were to be a holy people, not just the recipients of the common grace of God, recipients of a special blessing from God. And so the obligations that these holy people had were to not to intermarry. That's what the next verses tell us, verse 3 and 4. They're not to intermarry with these people because their sons will have hearts turned away from Yahweh. I mean, that's, that's clearly an application we're familiar with as Christians If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've seen the wisdom of God in showing us how important it is that marriage between a man and a woman is like-minded when it comes to the most important thing. I mean, some have questioned the wisdom of this. I get to work with college students in our church, and some of them think that they're the Hudson Taylor of dating. Hudson Taylor's a famous missionary. That was a stretchy reference, but... They go in and they think, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll lead this person to Christ in my missionary dating enterprise. And that's an offense to God. And as they you know, are tempted to enter into marriage with someone who has the most fundamental, important thing in life different from they are, they're set up for a very difficult life. I mean, those of you in this room who are married to an unbeliever, you know the difficulty of that. Some of you converted after you were married. Your spouse, you still pray for them. But it's a reminder that nothing matters more than our devotion to Christ. And that this affection for another person and this this marriage to a, a person who was not a worshiper of Yahweh is the most significant issue in life. We understand that as Christians, we're defined by Christ. We enter into a relationship with someone who doesn't know Christ. It's unthinkable. It's why the Apostle Paul identifies it specifically as such a dangerous sin and says, do not be yoked together or joined together with an unbeliever. God's people then and God's people now are forbidden from marrying those who are not God's people. And so holiness is a position that they occupied. They are a holy people, verse 6. It was also a call to obedience. It's recognizing that God says you belong to him, that he dictates your life and your worship. It's understanding both of these realities that's so important when we think about the gospel according to Moses and we think about the, the applications of holiness. I remember hearing a preacher say once, God didn't save you to make you holy. He saved you to make you his. And I remember listening to that and going, yeah, that's good because it kind of rhymes. And it stuck in my head because it's one of those rhymy things. God didn't save you to make you holy. God saved you to make you his. And it would take some time before I would adequately process that antinomian statement and recognize it as something completely invalid. 
It's nonsense. God didn't save you to make you holy. He saved you to make you his. When God saved you, he made you his. Yes, but when you're his, you are holy. That's what it means to belong to him. And so when God calls you to himself, he calls you to the most holy being in the universe. Therefore, you too are now holy. This is the biblical understanding of holiness. And it was true for God's covenant people, and it's true for us. Sanctification for the Christian starts with the same realization before sanctification is warfare, before it's effort, before it's striving, independence, all those things. It's first and foremost a fact. Christians are not primarily referred to as Christians in the New Testament. What are they called? Saints, that's right. They're called saints. Christians like the Corinthians are called saints, holy ones, because you've been redeemed by Christ. He's called you holy by covering you with his blood. And when God sees you, he sees that perfect atoning sacrifice of Christ on you, and he calls you a saint. Saints are not famous Christian dead guys with halos that float around church history paintings. Saints are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are made so by God's grace, and holiness is a reality before it's a pursuit. The reason God chose Israel was to favor them and thereby reach the world with these people. They were to be a holy people, a light to the Gentiles. And if Israel looked like the world, they would be useless to God as a witness to his grace. The good news of God's revelation to his people, of his calling as his people would make no sense if they looked like Hittites and Amorites and Karen, you know, the otherites. Not because of racial distinction, but because of a difference in, not, not a cultural differences or, or differences in background or, or, or superficial things like that, but the, the ultimate difference that defined them is that they were people that belonged to God, exclusively devoted to him, and that's what made them holy. In the same way, the church has been called for the same reason. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, metaphorically speaking, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that Jesus could look at his disciples and say, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. The greatest danger in the church today is not persecution. The greatest danger in the church today is worldliness. It's being seduced and beguiled by the church that looks like the world. And I think young Christians in particular are in danger here because they're so often taken by style rather than substance, sucked into a particular kind of look of things. Even when it comes to church, they look at a church like ours and, you know, it used to have deep red carpet. I think half the people left when we turned it to brown, but just... They look at a church like ours with stringed instruments and they say, no, I'm looking for something with, you know, something more casual, something more young, something more like me. And that's, that's a poor way to think about the church because it, it's an evaluation of just external things. God's people are to be a holy people and it has nothing to do with whether they wear ties or not. It has everything to do with, are these people separating themselves unto God? Are they recognizing their responsibility to reflect holiness to the world? And what's true of Israel is true of us. Spurgeon said this, I believe the one reason why the church of God at present has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. You see, worldliness creeps into the church and has covered the church like some invisible mold at first, small and seemingly harmless, but then it started to turn black and cover everything. 
And too many churches have been seduced and succumbed to worldliness in an attempt to show people that they're relatable, in an attempt to reach the lost and dying world. Too many people didn't understand that God's people have always been called to be distinctive, to be holy, to not be conformed to the world, or we'll lose our influence on the world. And God knew that was true for the people of Israel. John MacArthur had this sentence I heard him say once. He comes up with sentences. I could work 20 years and not come up with one good sentence. He's walking down the hall, and he said this one sentence. Uh, He said, worldliness is a failure to reject everything that panders to the flesh. Just walking down the hall, he drops a line like that. Worldliness is a failure to reject everything that panders to the flesh. Remember, the flesh isn't, isn't just our, our physical bodies. It's our fallenness. It's our fallenness. When we fail to reject everything that panders to our fallenness, we forget that sin isn't for God's people. Sin is to be shunned by God's people. It's to be rejected. It's to be repented of. We're to live in a way that marks us as different. And so we're warned of the dangers of worldliness. It's not about cultural preferences. It's about sin Jesus warns to not let the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things that enter in to choke the word out. He calls his people to be holy, to recognize that they are holy, they belong to God, separate from the world. And Moses saw the holiness of God as the starting point of good news. And there's something else he sees as good news in this passage. He saw that the gospel according to Moses demonstrates God's initiative. So if 1 through 6a is demands God's holiness, 6b through uh, 16 or so, let's call that, demonstrates God's initiative, and we need to pick up significant speed here. So what do we mean by demonstrating God's initiative? Well, look at the second half of verse 6. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What an incredible truth this is. What a gospel that Moses declares to these people. Of all the peoples on the face of the earth, uh, verse seven tells us, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples for the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What does all this mean? Well, the gospel, according to Moses, demonstrates God's initiative. And in these verses, we see a doctrine that most think is a New Testament kind of doctrine. We thought this was a Pauline kind of a thing. We thought Paul invented Calvinism, but it turns out Moses is potentially a five-pointer as well. Let me show you what verse seven at the end of verse six says. Look at these words. Your God has chosen you, chosen you. The Lord has set his love on you. Verse seven, chose you. Verse seven, why? Not because you're great, not because you were many or numerous. Verse eight, because Yahweh loved you because he made a promise and an oath. 
I mean, you see the same kind of teaching in Romans chapter 9, verse 4 of German, Romans chapter 9, verse 4, and Deuteronomy, when it says, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord has driven them out before you because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. What kind of religion, man centered, is forbidden in Israel? There's no place whether for Christians today. This is the doctrine of election on display. And if you, if you struggle with that doctrine, I'd encourage you to read Romans 9, Ephesians chapter 1. If your Christianity doesn't have the word foreknowledge in it or election or predestination, it's not just that you didn't go to the right Sunday school classes. It's a serious concern. Because Moses points out the choice of God, God's choice of Israel, not being based in anything about Israel, but instead being rooted and grounded in God's love for Israel as a foundational nature of what it means to be chosen by God. Moses wants his people to get this. And he doesn't explain the doctrine of election in the same way Paul does, but he doesn't give it to them with some profound truth here. He shows them they're about to be a prized people. They're a treasured people that God has placed his covenant love on them. And what does Deuteronomy 7 show us? Well, it shows us that the choice, and that's what the word election means. It means choice. And if you have any temptation to ever think of God's election as anything apart from God's love, like it's some kind of eeny, meeny, miny, moe, or, or Russian roulette, spin the, spin the whatever you spin, uh, that's not how the Bible presents God's choice. It's, it's rooted in the love of God. And literally in Hebrew, it says a special treasure out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the reason he did it, verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you're more in number than any of the peoples, for you're the fewest of all peoples. Well, why did he do it then? Verse 8, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the choice of God, God's choosing Israel to be his people and not another people we see as choice of love, a doctrine of God's choice that's rooted and grounded in love, deep, passionate, and full of desire. That's the kind of love being described when we talk about election. It is the choice of God. It's the setting of God's love upon an undeserving people. It's rooted in love, and it's guaranteed by God's promise and oath. And so he says, because of the oath which he swore to their forefathers, there's this responsibility there. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. So certainly the reason that we love God is because he first loved us. But the required response to God's electing love is that his people would love him, and because they love him, they would obey him. And it's important that those things aren't reversed. Look at the rich blessings he describes in chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. It'll come about because you listen to these judgments and keep them, that the Lord your God will keep you with his covenant and his loving kindness. Swore to your forefathers, he'll love you and bless you and multiply you. And then he describes all these blessings that will come to these people that God has chosen simply because of God's grace, but demonstrated because of God's initiative. None of these people made themselves an Israelite. God set his covenant, electing, predestinating love 
upon his chosen, justified people who've been lavished with blessings. I think the middle of Deuteronomy 7 sounds just like Ephesians chapter 1. It's how God treats his choice. He provides for them. He cares for them. These people who have known all the difficulties of life in the wilderness will now inhabit beautiful cities and rich grain fields, and all of it will be a blessing from God. And the doctrine of election is a difficult doctrine for a human being with a limited mind to wrap ourselves around a full understanding of it, but it's a doctrine that's worth exploring because it's a doctrine that provokes worship like no other doctrine. All glory goes to God. It destroys man-centered religion. It destroys a works relationship. It destroys a statement like, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It tells you the answer to the question, why am I a Christian and, and someone else is not? Well, ultimately, it's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're holier. It's because God has reached into your life and extended his undeserved grace by his righteous choice alone. And in that way, in salvation, God receives all the glory. That was true of Israel. It's true of us. And they were to be a people who were not to be afraid, verse 17 and 18, a people who at the end of this chapter understand exactly what God expects of them as they enter this land. They're to be completely obedient to him because they're ultimately a treasured people. Well, third and final aspect of the gospel according to Moses that wraps this chapter up is that it delivers God's security. It delivers God's security 17 to the end of the chapter, demands God's holiness, demonstrates God's initiative, and delivers God's security. Verse 17, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Verse 18, you shall not be afraid of them. Verse 19, the great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and wonders and and mighty hands an outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples whom you are afraid. Verse 26, you should not bring an abomination to your house and like it come under the ban, you shall utterly detest it. Verse 21, you shall not dread them for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. I mean, these beautiful statements of the greatness and awesome character of God is what gives his people confidence that they can enter into the land, that they are the treasured possession of God, that they belong to him, that his promises are theirs, not because of anything they have done, but ultimately because God has covenanted in relationship to them, because God has chosen them and made them his bride, his holy special people, and they have a sense of God's security a sense of God's choice and love and a deep understanding of God's holiness. Friends, if this sounds familiar to our gospel, it's because it is. God is the same then as he is now. What makes these people precious to God, which is how I would describe these closing verses, this this deliverance of a promise of God's unending security for his people in their relationship with him, what makes them precious is ultimately that they belong to him. It's nothing in themselves. It's similar to how he understands election in verse seven. Well, what makes something precious is, is oftentimes what it means to the person who finds it precious. 
In other words, what's precious to me isn't necessarily precious to you. When one of my daughters was very little, she had a blanket. Lots of little babies have a favorite blanket, right? And she would just work this little blanket. She rubbed it to the Hebrew word harem, to utter destruction. And all that was left of it was this like silky little tag. And she called her blanket tag. And Taggy, Tag, Taggerson, Tagaroo, whatever the name of the tag was that day, was so precious to her, she would keep it with her, make sure she had it when she went to bed. Now, if I offered it to you, you wouldn't want it for various reasons. But to her, it was precious. It was valuable. It mattered to her. That's sort of what it's like to be a treasured people, a people who are special to him because of who he is, because they reflect his image, because he's put their, his name on them, because they're to follow in his holiness. No matter how mangled the church looks on the outside, no matter how worn she may be, she's determined, she's been chosen by God and his sovereign choice is his treasured possession and friends. Friends, that's the gospel because we're a people who desperately need a savior, who have nothing of worth to bring. But we come to the cross and there we find a God who finds us valuable, not because of us, but because of him. And to him is all the glory. A gospel that is founded in the nature and character of a holy God that calls his people to be identified with him and a gospel that begins not with works or human initiative, but with divine initiative and a gospel that promises and delivers God's blessing and security is the gospel Moses describes. This isn't a book merely of law. It's a book where the law shows us the grace of our great God and prefigures for us the glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gospel on display in Deuteronomy 7. May these rich truths dwell deep in our hearts to know you, O God, that you choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of the world, the despised things to nullify those which are. God, ultimately, may we all walk away from this word without a boastful word on our tongues, knowing, God, that all glory is Unto you and because of you we are in Jesus Christ. That you've become for us, that he's become for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and holiness and salvation. Friend, if you don't know Jesus savingly, the prayer room is always open after services on Sunday night. It's to my right, to your left, under those exit doors. We would love to let you know more about our church, about what it means to follow Jesus, to be baptized in allegiance to him. Please avail yourself of that opportunity. Father, thank you so much for this night for our precious church, in Jesus' name, amen.